God more. So I pray today that this will be helpful to you. We live in very uncertain times. For every opinion about essentially any topic, there's dozens of alternative conflicting opinions. For every political stance, there's an opposing viewpoint expressed by an equally intelligent person. And both sides make it sound as if the very survival of the United States is at stake. You will hear a lot of that this week. Ideas, philosophies, educational approaches, relationships, uncertain, 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 uncertain. It used to be that you could count on your, your vocation as a place of certainty, right? Those of us that have been in the workforce in the room longer than others will remember that there was a time when companies took uh, longevity very seriously. It's now estimated that of the younger among us, you will have 15 to 20 different jobs over the course of your working career, and seven or eight of those in different fields. Jeez. So in other words, when you get a job and you finally get settled and feel like you know what you're doing, wash, rinse, repeat, over and over and over. Even what you think would be cut and dry, like health and medicine, for example. Let's say you just happen to come up with a foot problem, and you go to a physical therapist, a chiropractor, a podiatrist, an orthopedic surgeon. Guess what's going to happen? You will get told four different things with four different plans. We exist with massive absence of clarity. Really, the only thing that's certain anymore is the fact that things are uncertain. Concurrent with that immense uncertainty is the fact that many of us are overwhelmed by fear, worry, and anxiety. This has been called the age of worry. That makes sense, right? Those ideas go together. So if experts in history or politics or medicine or religion or education or technology fundamentally disagree on the essential issues of their disciplines, then of course that's going to trickle down into the general population. And we become chronically affected, chronically worried people. If you can't count on your job or your friends or your retirement or your education or your spouse, doubt and fear are completely understandable reactions. But biblical Christianity can flourish in that kind of setting. When there is confusion, a sense that things are unreliable, when there's an anxiety-producing environment, Christianity can actually flourish there. But so many of us feel the same uncertainty about spiritual things that we feel about everything else. In fact, maybe even more so. Faith is often thought of today as simply a matter of personal preference or belief without any evidence. But it's not that. And it doesn't have to be that way. There's a different way of understanding faith, a different way of thinking about spirituality. Despite the gargantuan number of spiritual claims out there, when you boil it all down and go to the scriptures themselves and ask what does God really say about himself, what does he say about the nature of faith, what does he say about how you know that you know, it's actually pretty simple. There's actually a very beautiful, simple gospel message that can produce incredible hope 
and confidence in the faith, and that then can trickle down into every other area of life. So by way of introduction, I would just ask you today, are you someone that would really like to find spiritual certainty? Would you like to know that you know? Would you like the ability to sit down on the inside? Are you aware of how deeply a lack of spiritual assurance is affecting every area of your life? Well, we, my dear friends, can have rock-solid assurance about spiritual things. And that assurance can give us a humble confidence that then affects everything in life. And it will no longer matter all that much if you don't have certainty in relationships or in your finances or at work or when you go to turn on your car, that the spiritual confidence you have with God can give you a confidence in the other things of life. That's really what John is going to tell us today. And so let's look at some of what Nathaniel read. 1 John 2, let me read just a few verses starting in verse 3. And by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Church, certainty about the reality of your spiritual condition before God can be yours. And that can give you an internal spiritual confidence that you belong to Him. God does not long for you to be a deceived person. He wants you to know the difference between fact and fiction, between what is and what appears to be, between those who say they have God and those who really have God, between appearance and substance, between knowing about God and truly knowing God. And John, throughout this letter, is going to give us multiple different areas of our lives that we should look at to find if we have that confidence or not. And the one he tells us today to look at is very simple. He says, look at your behavior. How do you know that you know God? You look at your behavior. So here's the principle. We know that we've come to know God if we increasingly keep his commands. Let me say it again. We know that we have come to know God increasingly keep his commands. So today I just want to talk to you, with you, about that principle. But before we do that, let's spend a couple of minutes on what it means to know God. What does it mean to know God? John says very clearly, we know that we've come to know him. That's how the passage starts. That's a massive claim. That's a glorious reality. It's possible to know God, have you lost the wonder in that? The same God who created everything, the same God whose power is without equal, whose knowledge includes everything there is to know, whose resources are endless, that God says, you can know me and I want to know you. That's incredible. But to know God isn't to have a particular ethical stance. It's not to show up in this room every week. It's not to be a Republican. It's not to support the traditional family. 
It's not to find a certain kind of external morality or simply to think particular things are truthful. Now, to some degree or another, some of those things, maybe all of those things, may flow from particular Christians' lives and convictions. But they're not the essence of what Christianity is. They don't get to the heart of what it means to know God. To know God is to have experienced what Martin Luther, the great reformer in the 1600s, called the great exchange. It's to see that we are made to reflect something of God. Every person is born to image God. That's their commission. That's their reason for existence. And yet, we all twist and distort and resist God instead of following Him. The Bible's word for that is sin. But God wants a love relationship with us. In other words, He wants to be our Father and we be His kids despite our rejection of Him. And so, He took the initiative to bridge a way back into right fellowship with him. That way is his son, Jesus. So Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life in our place, died a sacrificial death in our place, and then rose from the dead in our place. In order that if we would simply acknowledge our sinfulness, acknowledge his rightful claim over our lives, turn from sin, turn to God, then we can experience what Luther called the great exchange, which is simply, I trade my sin for Jesus' goodness. That's a good deal. That's a really good deal. So all of Jesus' perfection, all of his righteousness, all of his obedience before the Father becomes mine. And all of my sin becomes his. And because he was perfect, he was able to die a sacrificial substitutionary death. So there's a great exchange that happens. Friends, quite simply, that's what Christianity is. It's the belief that in history, Jesus did that, and all who will turn to him can find that great exchange in their own lives. Christianity is to know God, to know that God seeks people out like that and for us to respond in faith. That's it. Now, Not only does God say we can know him in that way, he can say we know that we know that we know. We can be convinced. We can have assurance. But how do we know? Because that exchange of my sin for Jesus' righteousness isn't something you can readily observe with the eye. In other words, it doesn't somehow physically change what you look like. It doesn't change your name, although it did some people in the Bible. It doesn't change where you live. It doesn't change where you go to work. It doesn't change who you live with. It doesn't change if you have children or not. It's an internal change. So how do you know that you know? Well, there's lots of ways, and John tells us today, we know that we know when we look at our behavior. We know that we've come to know God if we increasingly keep His commands. So, A way we know that we're Christians is incrementally is our behavior reflecting more and more the life of Christ. We've tried to get at this in our church's purpose statement, which simply says that we exist to glorify God through lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That that's what church is for. 
It's a group of people who together have committed to follow that Christ and to become more like him. Christianity is a faith of change. It's a faith that says we're sinners, not in need of minor tweaks, but of radical transformation. One preacher put it like this. Are you making progress? Are you less irritable, less impatient, less fearful, less moody, more compassionate, more peaceful, more joyful, more true to your convictions, more self-controlled than you were last year? If you don't know, ask somebody who knows you. In behavior, are you changing? If you hear those kinds of things and you say, well, yeah, I am. And that change isn't mere external. In other words, I'm not manipulating other people to think of me better than I am. If that change is really coming from the heart, then you should have confidence that the internal change, the great exchange, has happened. Now, that's the principle. So we can all just pack up and go home, right? Yes, I heard a yes. (laughs) Awful person. Look at verse 3 again. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. It's incredibly simple, and yet it seems to me there's, there's twin dangers here. If there's a road we need to walk on, there are two ditches that we can equally get caught in as we think about this. One is the danger that we think belief is demonstrated or evidenced or maybe precisely more caused by change in behaviors. So in other words, belief comes because I'm changing my behaviors. But that's not really what John says, is it? I mean, he doesn't say, I know God loves me because I've changed my behavior. No, that's not what he's saying at all. In fact, what he's getting at is something more like this. Because God loved me, because God sought me out, because God pursued me while I was in my sin, because even though I rejected Him, He sought me, He loved me, He made me aware of my need for Him and His rightful claim over my life. Because of all of that, then I repented. Then I came to Him in faith and I put my trust and confidence in Him. Because of all of that, Now I'm seeking to live out my faith. I'm seeking to show I love him because he's already loved me. So it's the therefore that's so important that it be therefore. I obey not to get faith, but I obey because I already have it. I don't obey in order to become a Christian. Obedience flows from the fact that I'm already a follower of Jesus. Now, there's entire swaths of what would be called Christianity that's rooted in that world. And it's massively destructive because it doesn't work and it's not true. But there's another danger that I think, honestly, for us is far more potent and applicable. On the other side of that road of thinking about this rightly is a ditch that says only beliefs matter. So what I do doesn't really make any difference at all. It's all about what I think. And if I believe in God, that is simply enough. Now, we don't say it that way, right? 
At least I don't hear it that way. It's more things like only God knows or it's just a rough patch for her or who am I to judge or church is supposed to be all about grace. Many of us assume that mental agreement with the death and resurrection of Jesus is all it takes to know God. Just as wrong as this camp is, this one is too. If I say I'm a Christian, in other words, if I make a statement of belief, but then have no regard for God and His Word, which is what the Scriptures call repentance, and then I say that over a long period of time it doesn't matter, well, that would reveal that my claim is incorrect, that I don't really know God. I just believe facts about Him. The change that happens in salvation is so dramatic that genuine Christians can't help but be molded and shaped by the great potter because they're the clay in his hands. Change is inevitable. Knowing God necessarily includes being consistently changed by God. So think of it like we talk about athletics, for example. If someone says to you, are you a runner? How many runners in the room do we have? A few of you that will name it and raise it. All right, so when somebody asks you, are you a runner? What we mean is not, do you call yourself a runner? Or do you wear running clothes? Or do you get running magazines and leave them laying around your house? That's not what we mean, right? We clearly mean, do you have a habit of running? Is running the way you live your life? Why do we think about athletics that way, but when we come to something far more important, your condition before an eternal, holy, completely in charge God, and we ask, are you a Christian? Do we mean something completely different? Oftentimes when we ask, are you a Christian, we simply are asking, do you believe in God? Do you believe he came and died and rose again? Not, is all of your life being lived under the incredible claim that God is your master? Are you a Christian? Doesn't mean, did you walk the aisle of a church or get sprinkled as a kid or were you born into a Christian home? What we mean is, have you come to know God and therefore, is He the driving center of your life? Do you follow Jesus with everything? Do you seek to obey Him in everything? Do you love Him more than anything? Do you take His views to be your own? Do you submit to God's Word as your good guidance over everything in life? Do you have a particular affection for the people of God? Do you love what God loves? Are you a Christian? Friends, actions matter. Right actions flow from right beliefs in the lives of people who have experienced the great exchange. So you aren't saved by works of obedience, this camp, but you are saved in order to live a life of obedience. So I'm not made right with God by what I do, but it's not true that what I do doesn't matter. Because for the life genuinely changed by God, like John, who wrote this letter, he couldn't help but become a person of increasing obedience 
because he saw how much the Father loved him. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great English preacher, put it like this. A person's acts prove what faith they have. Walking in the light means repentance and turning from sin to holiness of life. These are the ultimate proofs of the genuineness of a true Christian's profession. To be a disciple of Jesus is to take on Jesus' way of life. It's not to add Christianity on the side like a garnish. It's for Christianity to become your life. It's for Christ to consume everything. Now that simple fact is why we organize ourselves here in gospel communities. It's why we offer training on how to be a disciple maker. It's why we push you to be people who are discipling each other. It's why we push you towards community and ask you to be deeply involved in each other's lives. It's why we do membership. Because church is not merely a worship gathering once a week. Although it is that. It's life on life calling each other to submit to Christ because Christ loves us and has given his life for us. So I have to ask you, friends, if you're here today and you claim to be a Christian, does your behavior confirm or deny that claim? As you pray that and ask the Father, Father, does my lifestyle evidence faith or does it cause me to question if I have it? I believe that's a prayer that God will answer. And our hope today is before you leave that all of us would ask that question and come to a point of having that settled. Now the next paragraph in the Bible I find really fascinating. John says in the one we've just read, you can know that you know that you know that you know God if you do what he tells you to do. And then the next place he goes is pretty fascinating. Now he could have gone to an appeal to our sexuality. So are you obeying me with your body parts? He could have done that, right? That would be a pretty good place to go. A lot of us struggle there. He could have gone to our vocations. In the place that you spend the majority of your time that you're awake, hopefully you're awake at work, then are you living out your faith well there? He could have done that. That would make sense. He could have gone to our money. Money's often an exceedingly difficult area of life for people to obey God in. He could have gone to our decision-making. Do you make decisions in line with obedience to God? He could have done any of those things. But instead, he makes a beeline directly for our relationships with each other. Now hear that in verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Out of all the commands God has given us, John chose specifically to emphasize the commandment for brother and sister, Christian and another Christian. To live in relationship with one another. That that's where we look to see, am I obeying God? I find that very fascinating. To know God is to grow in your relationship with Him. That 
intimate, intentionally intrusive, amazingly diverse group of people called the church, the family. To be loving towards one another is to be like Jesus. He who was the most loving human being who ever lived calls us now to love each other, to walk in the light. Doing that doesn't save me, but it shows me I'm saved. Now, why would John go there? Why would he do that? Why would he write that in that way? I think it's because loving each other requires applying the gospel to all our interactions. Loving each other is messy. It's far easier to, in a bubble, seek to obey God than it is to enter into life with other people who are also messy, and together we combine into a greater mess. Why? Because our ongoing struggle with sin makes us quite unlovable people. And we have a tendency not to see our own unlovableness. And when I get around others, then mine comes out. Your messiness points out my messiness. But the design of God there is beautiful. It's incredible. Because that drives me each and every time there's a problem, there's a difficulty, there's a question, there's a sense of uncomfortableness. It drives me to ask a question. Am I going to walk away from that because that's easier? And I'm going to self-devote and I'm going to protect? Or will I deny myself and step towards you in love and in pursuit? Will I love you like Christ has loved me? If I won't, maybe it's because I don't have the real thing. If I do, then it's evidence that I have the real thing. Do you see that? Jesus, of course, did this to the ultimate degree. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. Therefore, while we are, as his people, walk in the light, step towards each other, then we see again and again and again the gospel at work in our own hearts. We understand God stepping towards us means we now step towards each other. Isn't that beautiful? Learning to live the life of faith happens as we exercise the gospel in our relationships. Now, how do you do that? Well, the one and others are scattered throughout the New Testament and they specify what it means to love each other. So today, maybe even as you're sitting here, search on your phone for one another's in the New Testament and then try to apply one of those every day for the week. If you do that, it will take you 20 weeks to get through all of them. There's a lot of them. That's how many one another's God gives us. Friends, do you want spiritual assurance? Are you tired of getting beat up by life? Are you sick of getting tossed around? Do you chronically battle fear, anxiety, worry, doubt, insecurity? It might be that the reason that is the state of your heart is because you don't have spiritual confidence before God. 
You might have done lots of things. You might have believed that he came and died and rose again. But have you really submitted your life to him? Have you turned from sin and turned to God? Have you given over the reins of your heart to him? Have you climbed off the throne and said, Jesus, you belong there? Would you like it to be different? Does knowing God sound really good? Then throw yourself at the foot of the cross. At the cross, Jesus took the full punishment for your sin. His judgment can be your judgment. And just as God raised him from the dead for new life, you too can have new life. You can have the right standing of Jesus before the Father. There is no reason to have any question, any doubt about where you stand before God. It does not require a messy less past. It requires an acknowledgement of the mess and a submission of it to Him. So if that's you, we would encourage you even now to turn from your sin and turn to God. And it might be the first time you've ever sat in a room like this and heard these words. Or you may have been doing it for decades. If you've never responded to God in that way, your need is exactly the same before Him. And if you're here today, brother or sister, and you already know God, your, your past behavior confirms that there's been inward great exchange. But maybe some of your actions lately If you look at those and you're honest, you would say, there is this and this and this that I have not obeyed God in. And I know it. Would you respond to God in the same way by saying, God, the person's need for Christ that has never sought Him is that the gospel would be applied to their hearts. And my need is the same. It's that I would repent and return to you. That the same gospel that saved me back then would now keep me saved. Would you return to Him? Would you turn back to God? Would you commit to do whatever it is that you've been saying no to? Would you be radically committed to total obedience? Because that's how Christians live. Before we go, let's take a few moments in just silent prayer before God, asking Him what He would have us do in light of this incredibly simple message that John gives us. Would you ask Him, God, do I know You? Would you look at your behavior and say, does it confirm that I know God? Not perfectly, of course, but is there a desire to obey Him?